prayer and praise this evening, which is always good news because it means you're sort of given free reign. You can choose, choose whichever passage you fancy preaching on. And um, sometimes you think, oh no, there's a lot in there, I'm not sure. Other times you think, I know exactly where I'm going with this. And I thought to myself this week, I know where I'm going with this. <clears throat> Because actually tonight it was um, it was supposed to be Ian taking the service, but um, he's on holiday from from now onwards, and um, he had two funerals to prepare. He had two services to prepare. He's been dealing with pastoral situations. He's not had a break, and so I said to him, "Look, let me take let me take Sunday evening." That was on Monday. My eyes were fine then. <laughs> Typical. But um, I, I said that because over the summer we've been doing this series, haven't we? On Sunday mornings, we, we've looked at. Um, Joseph, David, Nehemiah and Paul, four um, significant biblical characters. And we've been looking at at their character, the life they led, what they went through and what we can take from their lives and apply to our own. And it's been really good. I've I've enjoyed it. We've had a bit of fun. It's been been family services. Um, But um, but it has been interesting as well. It's always always interesting, isn't it, when we go back to stories that we know. When you go back to a story that you've read a, a thousand times, that you were taught as a child and that you've gone back to as, as an adolescent, then as an adult, and as you go through life and you think, I know that. But I find, maybe it's just that I'm rubbish at absorbing detail, but I find that I always get struck by a new detail. Something jumps out at me that I haven't noticed before. So, for example, with, um, with David... I noticed that in some translations of scripture, before David meets Goliath, before he's, um, he's even, um, that, that scene has even begun, David is referred to as a mighty warrior. Now, of course, we always patronise him, call him the little shepherd boy. But actually, some translations suggest that he was a bit more than that, that he had a little bit of fighting experience. Others don't. But it's interesting, isn't it? It got me thinking about, do we over-patronise the, the little shepherd boy David? Does he deserve a little, bit more, um, a little bit more standing before he went off to face Goliath? Have we made the story a bit convenient for ourselves? Um, with Nehemiah, I was str- I've noticed this before, but I was just struck once again by the fact that when he starts building the city walls of Jerusalem, there's this huge task. He's got the ruins to clear, he's got all the materials to bring in, he's got the labour force, then his labour force is split in half because he has to put half of them on guard duty because they're under attack. He's got all of, these, um, all of this conflict to deal with, and yet, we're told, the city walls were rebuilt within 52 days. That's a staggering timescale to carry out such a large construction project, bearing in mind they had no heavy lifting equipment or, or anything like that. I was struck by that passage in Paul where he lists everything, all the, the, the physical struggles that he went through. And we had a bit of fun soaking Ian and watching him being assaulted and all that. That was, that was great, all for that. But actually, it just reminded me, sometimes we can, we can read Acts and we can read about how Paul says... We, we stayed in such and such a city, and then we moved on. And then the story goes on. But actually, it raised the question in my mind, I wonder why they left. Did they leave bloodied and beaten? Did they hear of a plot to kill them and flee at the last minute, just, just escaping with their lives? It kind of, it kind of gives a new, element, new dimension to the story. But most of all, I learnt a lot about Joseph this summer as we prepared to, um, to learn and to, to do the service about, about Joseph, I learned a lot. 
and I did an evening service, some of you would have been here, um, where I spoke a lot about Joseph, and we're not going not to have a recap on that. But we spoke about Potiphar's wife, the, the slightly awkward bit that wasn't really suitable for the family service. When Potiphar, this, this um, head of the king's guard, this very high-ranking soldier, a very powerful man, um, Joseph has been his slave, and Joseph has proven himself and lived a life of integrity and lived a life that honoured God, and he's risen through the ranks, and eventually for a slave he becomes, um, becomes Potiphar's right-hand man. This, this is an incredible position. And people like him and people respect him. And then when Potiphar trusts him with his household and goes off and leaves all of his affairs for Joseph to look after, Potiphar's wife says to Joseph, come to bed with me. You see why we couldn't do it in a family service. And Joseph says no. And her reaction, her reaction struck me. Because you see, Joseph has worked his way up. He's been embraced by the society that he was once a slave to. And although technically he is still a slave, the position he has is one of authority. He holds a bit of power. He holds a lot of people's respect. He's been embraced. Potiphar's wife is tempted by this young, good-looking guy that's in our household. He's very powerful. He's well-respected. He lives a life of integrity. She likes him. She wants him. But the thing that struck me, the thing that we're going to focus on tonight, is the tactics that Satan uses to try to undermine and destroy Joseph. He uses Potiphar's wife. She says, come to bed with me, but Joseph, is honor, he wants to honour God. He is strong. He says, no. This happens time and time again until eventually one day the temptation almost becomes too much for Joseph, this young single guy who's, who's got this, this lady laying herself on a plate for him. And so he flees. He turns and he runs and he gets away from the temptation. He removes himself from that situation because he's got to the point where resisting temptation has become so hard. And Potiphar's wife calls to the other slaves... Genesis chapter 39, 14. She says, see what that Hebrew has done. That Hebrew. The first thing she does is to highlight the difference between us and him. You see what that Hebrew has done. And that's Satan's tactic, isn't it? He loves to divide us. He loves to to, to split people, to, to highlight people's differences, to encourage fear, suspicion, mistrust. And that got me thinking. Now, of course, there are countless examples of this throughout Scripture, and we'll be here all night and all day tomorrow if we try and cover them all, but I've just got a handful to look at. We go back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 12. God says, why did you hide? Adam says, because I heard you coming through the garden and I was naked. God says, how do you know you were naked? Adam says, that woman you gave me, that woman, she told me to eat the the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That woman, not me, no, no, I'm a bloke, not me, no, 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 that woman. We're different, you see, we're different. He immediately highlights, just like Potiphar's wife saying, that Hebrew, Adam says, that woman. And so, for Joseph, there's almost a a racial division 
the racial divide is highlighted. And immediately, Joseph is the outcast. It's a them and us, and them is, is just him, him and us. Joseph is, is isolated through the language that Potiphar's wife uses. Adam attempts the same thing, but thankfully God doesn't accept that. God protects Joseph. Joseph has to go through a trial. Potiphar is furious with him. He doesn't put him to death. He puts him in prison. So Joseph, having worked his way up and up and up through, um, through society in Egypt, suddenly finds himself back down at the bottom in prison, lower than, lower than the slave that he'd originally been. And in prison, very quickly, God blesses him. He gets put in, front of, uh, put in charge of a, um, a, a group of prisoners. And we're told that the prison guard trusted him almost to the point of not having to guard him. So Joseph continued to live a life of integrity. So we've got, we've got a racial division that we see happening in Joseph's story. We've got gender division that we see in the Garden of Eden. We've just sung, haven't we? Strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord. But often, often strength doesn't actually rise while we wait upon the Lord. As wrong as that may sound, often frustration rises while we wait upon the Lord. Impatience rises while we wait upon the Lord. Boredom rises while we wait upon the Lord. If we're completely honest, strength often lowers. It doesn't rise, it, 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 it gets less and less while we wait upon the Lord. Because as we wait, we get distracted. I always remember... Um, I used to do a lot of a lot of running when I was younger. I used to compete quite a lot on the athletics track, and um, my dad used to coach me. Um, and um, whenever I was going into a race, he'd sort of he'd sort of say, "Right, today I want you to um, to go out easy, just see what's going to happen. Watch the other watch the other guys. Then last lap, you know, really save something for that. Give it give it all you've got in the last lap, and just burn them out. Go on, you can do. I used to have quite a good sprint finish, if I may say so myself. But do you know what? As as I always remember. As you're standing there, waiting to be called, they sort of they, they group the runners together um, before they call you onto the start line. And you're standing there, sort of looking around, and you think, "I want to make a statement. I want to go out fast. I want to go out hard. I want to really scare these guys. I want to I want to make them think, crikey, this guy's this guy's quick. I can't keep up with him. I want to beat them in the first hundred meters, even though it's a, an 800 or a 1500 meter race. That's what I want to do." And it always happened, that, that always went through that sort of, that mindset, those thoughts, as we were waiting for the race to begin. My coach had told me what to do. But so, it was so tempting to change my mind, to get distracted, to do things my way. And uh, I soon discovered that I was not a good enough runner to go out hard and, uh, and beat the rest of the field. I would go out hard and um, struggle to make it over the finish line at all. You see it with, in, a, in a football match, penalty shootout. Professional footballers often miss penalties quite spectacularly. They can put them wider over the bar and you think, you're paid hundreds of thousands of pounds a week, you've got to kick a ball 12 yards. How can you not do that? You've been doing it for years. And it's because as they walk from the halfway line to the penalty spot, doubt creeps in, that waiting. There's that time, even, even from the moment they put the ball down, and they stand back and they wait for the goalkeeper to settle himself. They wait for the referee to blow his whistle. They've got that doubt creeping in. I've always put it in the bottom right-hand corner. What if that goalkeeper knows? I, I, 
better do something different this time. And before you know it, even as they're running up, they're thinking, shall I, shan't I go bottom right, shall I, shan't I? And they've put it wide, or over, or straight to the goalkeeper. You see it happen. It's because actually, when we wait on something, doubt and distraction creep in. We can, as soon as we're, we're divided, as soon as our thinking is divided, whether we're divided from where we always put our penalty, whether we're divided from the instruction that the coach has given us. You see, this holy division in the book of Samuel, we see the Israelites choosing to divide themselves from God by demanding a king. And Samuel's, Samuel's devastated at this, that the whole, the whole people of Israel are choosing to follow a, a, a human ruler, just like all the other tribes and nations have, rather than simply accepting God as their king. God says, Samuel, I hear your prayer, but it's not you they reject, it's me. But of course, God never abandons Israel, despite them rejecting him. We see it in a family as well. We see when King Saul, later on in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 30, King Saul is talking to Jonathan. And Saul wants to, wants to kill Jonathan. Jo- uh, sorry, Saul wants to kill David. And Jonathan, Saul's son, is saying, No, father, no. He's a good man. What's he done against you? And Samuel records. That Saul says to Jonathan, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Saul was his father. But that's immediately the family is divided because Saul chooses to, to, to side, to sort of, you know, me and your mother are different. She was perverse and rebellious. You're like her. Immediately there's division. And immediately Satan can creep in. And as we know, Saul lost favour with God very quickly. In the book of Daniel, we see... We see division comes through authority. The king makes a decree that, that no God should be worshipped. Um, Daniel refuses to accept that. He refuses to, to follow the diet that was prescribed and follow the ways of worship that were demanded. Daniel continues to, to worship God. And the king's advisors, when they're describing Daniel, they say, Daniel, one of the exiles from Judah. They don't seem say, Daniel the guy that you've come to love and respect and care for, the guy that you you would hate to see thrown into a den of lions, the one you'd hate to punish, the one who's actually done nothing really wrong, they immediately divide. He's one of the exiles from Judah. In the New Testament, in the book of Matthew, we almost see a divided marriage, don't we, with Mary and Joseph. There. They're due to be married, but Mary's found to be with child. And we're told that Joseph planned to divorce Mary, quietly. Thankfully, God sent an angel. God prevented it happening. But there was almost division there. You see, at all of these opportunities, Satan tries to creep in and and jump on a division and hammer it home and split families and split marriages and split friendships, split any sort of relationship that might be honouring to God. Sometimes division comes through fear. 
We see that in the book of Jonah. Jonah's told to go to Nineveh. He thinks, they'll rip me apart. I'm not going to go there. That's crazy. In fact, I'm going to go the other way. (coughs) And of course, God has other plans. Jonah tries to divide his destiny from the plan that God had for him. And God takes very drastic measures to make sure that, that Jonah doesn't have that option. You see, time and time again, division amongst followers of God, followers of Christ as we are now, gives Satan an opportunity. We've all heard the military tactic, divide and conquer. That's Satan's tactic. Let's not forget that Jesus was not one for dividing. Jesus was one of unity. Jesus was one who called people together. Jesus knew that when he called Judas as a disciple, that eventually he'd be betrayed. As they shared the Last Supper, Jesus quite openly predicted that, prophesied. He knew who Judas would be. He knew what lay in store for Judas. And yet he doesn't divide. He doesn't say, right, us 11, look at that traitor. Just you wait. He's the one. Instead, he he serves Judas that evening. When Jesus breaks the bread, Judas isn't left out. The writer of the book of Hebrews, in chapter 13, reminds us, the importance of sticking together. He reminds us that we are all one team. Reminds us that we are not a group of individuals. We are a corporate body. We are a team working together in a match that never finishes. Some people would say we are an army fighting together. I remember when I first became a Christian... Um, I heard several times that, that analogy. I'm still not that keen on it, but I've, I've sort of changing my, my position slightly. Um, I used to say, What's the, why do you need to go to church? You, you, can, you can believe in God, you can read the Bible, you can pray, you can, you can even do, have communion on your own if you, if you want to. Why do you need church? Church is just where people get it wrong. Church is damaging to, to God's word. Why do we need church? And I, I, didn't, I didn't get why. Church was so important. And uh, someone said to me, in fact, it it may even have been Ian, um, but I won't give him the credit for it. Um, Someone said to me, um, the the coal in the fire analogy. If if a coal falls out of a fire, what happens? Now, I've got a log fire at home. And so I didn't like that analogy because the analogy is if if a coal falls out of a fire, then the coal burns out. It goes cold. Now, I can tell you, if a log falls out of my fire, my fire at home, it burns my house down. Okay, You suddenly get this uncontrollable, blazing inferno that is so much more, more damaging than the controlled little fire in the fireplace, which gives heat and light and a lovely little glow at Christmas time. 
Actually, I used to think, no, that that analogy is flawed. And as I say, I still struggle with it slightly. But the writer of Hebrews says this. Keep on loving each other as brothers. Do not forget to entertain strangers. For by so doing, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners. And those who are ill-treated as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honoured by all. And the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid What can man do to me? Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. I love that passage. One of the key things in there for me is keep on loving. As we wait upon the Lord, as we feel the frustration and the the, the boredom and and, and the, the, the distractions kicking in, keep on loving each other as brothers and sisters. Keep on. Don't forget to entertain strangers. You see, when new people come into the church, they're strangers. We're told to entertain them. And what the, the writer of Hebrews there means there is not simply go up to them afterwards and introduce yourself and have a little bit of small talk, then walk away. It's get to know them. Invite them into your homes. We should be breaking bread. We should be sharing food. That's a very, a very intimate thing to do. That's how, that's how a family treats one another. Come round, we'll break bread. We'll have, we'll have food together. For by doing... But by so doing, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Sometimes we can miss opportunities. I'm not saying that every stranger that walks in is an angel. But I am saying that everybody that walks in that door is an opportunity. An opportunity to carry out the Great Commission. To go and make disciples of all nations. Well, do you know what? When they walk in the door, we don't have to go anywhere. We have to be We have to be what Jesus wants us to be, not go where he wants us to go. When people walk in through the door, we have to make every effort we can to form relationships, to get to know people, to to share time with them, not just here on a Sunday morning or evening or or a midweek group, but to invite them into our homes to break bread. When we look around, I mean, this is a big congregation. I come from um, uh, Christchurch in Stock, where it's a fairly small congregation, and and people did know each other. I think everybody there, at some point, we'd either had had them around for a meal or the other way around. It's a good thing to do. How many people in this congregation have you worshipped alongside for, for years and years and years and never broken bread with? I urge you to do it. Because we're all on the same team. We're all waiting upon the Lord. We're all subject to those, those little moments where God gets put to one side and something else creeps in to take his place. 
We're all vulnerable at times. We all need those little pep talks, those encouraging times where you spend, a, spend an evening together. And even if you don't talk about church, you get to know Christian brothers and sisters better, deeper. There's a reason, <clears throat> There's a reason the Bible is full of these examples of relationships that are either divided or at least come close to being divided. It's because Satan loves to force a wedge between believers, split them apart, highlight their differences, highlight the the things they might not be keen on about each other. Whereas God says, put your differences to one side. You are all my children. You are all part of my the one body with Jesus at the head, part of my church. You see, if we if we if we're following God's will, then we pursue the path to unity, to love. If we don't, and very quickly, we can drift apart. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word and for all the, the richness that it contains. Thank you, Lord, that when we go back to um, so many stories that we think we're very familiar with, Time and time again, we see a new slant on a familiar story. We recognise a detail that that we haven't recognised before. Things strike us afresh. And Lord, that's because it's a living word. That's because you speak to us through it. It's not simply an ancient document. This is a living word. And Father, we pray that that you will help us as as we begin this new academic year as people get back into routine with, with, with school or college or work or whatever it happens to be, as church gets back to normal after the, um, the, the summer program, Father, we pray that you will prompt us all to recognise any areas that we're not strong at, any areas within church, whether it's, whether it's hosting people, whether it's um, controlling our tongue sometimes, whether it's, whether it's getting, a, getting to a service early to talk to people, to spend time together, whether it's making time to stay late for church lunches, whatever it happens to be, Father, we pray that you will help us to commit to strengthening the, t- the bonds that tie us together, that hold us together as a church, as a, as a united family. We pray for for stronger unity between the three congregations. And most of all, Lord, we pray that in everything that we do together, we honour you and we build your kingdom here in Billericay. In Jesus' name we pray.